Hi everyone, my name is João and I'm your host for the Software Crafts podcast. Today with us, we have Lisa Crispy. Lisa is a co-author, Janet Gregory, of three books, Agile Testing Condensed, a brief introduction, More Agile Testing, Learning Journeys for the Old Team, and Agile Testing, a practical guide for testers and Agile team. Also, the Live Lesson Agile Testing Essential Video Course the whole team approach to Agile Testing three-day training course offered through the Agile Testing Fellowship. Lisa was voted by her peers as the most influential Agile Testing professional person at Agile Testing Days in 2020-2012. She's co-founder with Janet of Agile Testing Fellowship Incorporated. You can visit lizardcrispy.com, agiletestingfellowship.com and agiletester.ca for more. Liz is currently a fellow quality owner at OutSystems, helping with observer reality practice. Welcome, Lisa, and thanks for your time to be here with us today. Oh, thanks. It's, it's a great honor for me to be here. Thanks. thanks. I enjoy your podcast. Thanks very much for the compliment. So, and today for, for the heuristic, it's a very simple one, but I believe that uh, hides lots of secrets. And the heuristic is delayed automation. What is your opinion about this? Um, I think I think I, uh, it depends the typical answer rate. Um, I do feel like for things like UI level automation, uh, when you're going through more of an end to end through more layers to the application, I think this is probably a really smart approach because um, we don't, you know, we know the UI is going to keep changing and keep changing. Do we want to keep, do we want to maintain a test script for it while we're doing that or multiple test scripts for it while we're doing that? Uh, a lot of people, like I can think of this Keo, a lot of people advise not to do that. Um, but it just depends on what you mean by automation because at the same time, I'm quite a fan of using executable tests to guide development. So, if we're doing test-driven development, we're obviously automating a test before we even write any code for some small increment of functionality. So we're going to have automation as we go. And the same with behavior-driven development or acceptance test-driven development or specification by example. Using the business-facing test to guide development, once again, we're going to get some concrete examples of how the system should behave or not behave. We're going to express those in terms of executable tests. and that, the most important thing, of course, is getting those examples and scenarios and having everybody understand what they're going to build uh, as they begin to build it. But it's especially helpful if you can automate those executable tests so that as you go, like, okay, we think we have enough of, of this piece written that we can now run this test, maybe an API level test. And then when it's passed, well, okay, we know we're done with that part. Let's move to the next part. So still working in an incremental way. But in order to do that, you do have to automate first. So that's automating for the purpose of code design, system design, building the right thing, building it the right way. Um, but if you're going to automate, like I say, if you're going to automate through things through more layers and there's more uncertainty, of how it's going to end up, then I like this idea to understand it better before you try to automate it. Does that make sense? 
yes, it, it makes sense and, uh, and shows your own heuristics to decide if you delay automation or not. So I'm very curious. You, you mentioned a set of techniques that today I hope that they are known. The community stability spec by example. But you also talk that usually you can advise to delay automation at you. How do you know that you need to delay automation at UI level? How do you discover that as a team? I think it's probably a team discussion as you're building your UI. It, it, it depends on how complex your UI is, how much business logic is in your UI. And so, of course, you can do test-driven development of your user interface. So it's certainly possible to use test doubles and and build unit level tests for small units of your user interface. Um, and so people get confused when they look at the test automation pyramid because they see, oh, UI is at the top. Well, that's testing through the UI level. That's not testing the UI itself. So we can do unit tests at the bottom of that pyramid for the UI. I was like, hello, so I had a really good talk on this at the Selenium conference. 2018, I think, in Chicago, um, his, which I think you could find the recording of that. Of you know, we can have those tests that are quick to write to give the quick feedback that developers love to write at the UI in the UI. But if we're wanting to get confidence about our whole application by testing through multiple layers, like oh, I want to go through the UI, make sure it talks to the server correctly, make sure it gets the, the data back from the database correctly then those are the things that we're probably going to want to delay. The other thing, you know, we talk about automation. Of course, my mind as a tester goes to test automation, but we also have all these other things we automate. And so the big thing nowadays is automating our deployment pipeline. And I think that's another great area where delay could probably be good. So let's start out with our pipeline and, and visualize it, see what all of our stages are and many, at first, many of those stages are going to be manual. Manual deploys to test environments, manually, maybe manually building an artifact, um, and and doing a lot of the testing activities manually. And then we can look to see where do we want to automate first? What's our biggest bottleneck? Where do we want to automate first? Because we can't do everything all at once. So taking a step-by-step -step approach to something like building your deployment pipeline I hear that advice a lot when I go to DevOps and delivery, continuous delivery type conferences of uh, do a value stream map, see, see where the value is and as you need a change to go into the code base and get out to production, what all has to happen. Uh, some of those stages might start out being manual and then which ones do we want to automate as we go? And that's maybe a case where Understanding what you need to do might be a good thing to do before you try to automate it. And that's obviously not my area of expertise of how to automate deploys and stuff, although I've worked on teams where we've done it. But, uh, and again, I would say it's a team activity. Let's, let's everybody look at the pipeline, look at our bottlenecks, look at what's holding us up. Um, see, see where to go, see what to improve next, what to automate next. And, and maybe there are some things that we realize we can't automate at all. Um, in most 
business domains, there's probably a fair amount of what I like to call human-centric exploratory testing where we need a human to do it. Um, sometimes uh, people who are experts in accessibility testing, although there's a lot of automated tools available for that, experts tell me there's still things you want to do as a human and make sure things are right. That could even apply to security testing, other forms of testing. So there may, things, there may be things we don't want to automate at all. So let's not rush into it. Let's just evaluate what makes sense to automate next. It's, 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 it's a good advice. Uh, thanks. And um, yeah, we can see automation across the board, right? Look to software engineering and, and where do we need to automate? And um, in your career and because you advise people, did you saw situations where automate, uh, automation actually hurts the team? Uh, you know, I've seen in the, uh, the state of DevOps reports where if you look, they've got a graph, they call, I think they call it the J-curve of something automation. But a low-performing team wants to get to a, be a high-performing team. And so they know they need to do some automation. So they do some automation. They automate some regression tests, whatever it is. Maybe they get to the medium-performing level based on their metrics of their cycle time and how frequently they can deliver changes and what their change failure rate is and so on. But now they've got a lot of automation to maintain. In the case of automated regression tests, a lot of times if those are poorly designed, uh, they may fail a lot, they may need a lot of maintenance, they need a lot of, may need a lot of investigation and it starts actually to slow the team down. So this team actually will drop back down in their performance metrics. Um, and based on the data that I've seen in those reports, it takes a lot of discipline and determination for the team to get back out of that and go on, get past that and get back, get back towards being a high performing team. So um, I don't know if I've experienced that myself exactly, but, but I, you know, I've seen the, the scientifically collected and correlated data that, that shows that. But certainly I've been in situations where, oh, we want, we have lots, thousands of automated tests. We want to, we feel comfortable now that we can move to continuous delivery. So let's start deliver deploying to production more frequently. And then the pain of having things like flaky UI level tests starts to really hurt you. Because maybe up to now you were kind of ignoring them now if you ignore them and you want to deploy and then you realize, oh my goodness, there's a bad regression we didn't catch or there's some unintended effect somewhere else in the application. Now it's hurting you. And so I've, I've been through the experience of, oh, we, we were deploying every two weeks. Let's go to deploy twice a week. Well, now we haven't deployed for a month because <laughs> we caused ourselves so many problems. So I, I have experienced that pain where because you, because the team, for whatever reason, they did a great job with the production code, but they didn't design the test code well, or they didn't put good assertions in their tests, or they didn't design their test code with good coding practices, like avoid duplication where it makes sense, you know, make the names of things intelligible. So, you know, <laughs> so you can look at a test that failed and say, what was this test trying to do? What was it trying to test? So all those good practices that you apply to your production code, you need to apply to your test code as well. So I've seen teams, I've been on teams where we suffered from that. 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing sharing your uh, exp- uh, experience, and you touch um, on one topic that that I really like talking about the high performance teams in whatever matter definition of high performance is. But do you believe that the ecosystem also around the teams will help them, like seniority to guide the teams or even management to allow them to create a safe place? when automation hurt them, for instance? Are you referring to like a, a psychological safety to be feel free to experiment and to yeah. not worry about failing? Is that, what the, is that what you mean? For instance, in one aspect, yes, psychological safe, uh, but also mm-hmm. well, let's talk about error budgets. Ah. They are also linked, for instance. Um, um, so your experience on that, on that side. Uh, yeah, I... I, I understand the concept of error budgets, but I haven't actually worked uh, on a team that had them. Um, but I think it's a, when I've been on high-performing teams, I feel like what helped us become a high-performing team was that we started out by having a conversation about what level of quality do we want to deliver in our product, in our software product. And how would we measure that? Because it's really hard sometimes. It's very hard to measure quality. <laughs> um, so what does it mean to us? And what can we really commit to delivering? Because it's very hard to master the practices that that build quality in. Things like test-driven development. There was a panel. There were a couple of fishbowl discussions a month or two ago hosted by the Cucumber folks. Um, and they were talking about why has a test driven development caught on more because there are a lot of studies that show it prevents like 80% of the bugs. And my experience is because it's hard to learn. It takes a long time. There's a very steep, Brian Merritt called it the hump of pain. There's a, a long time where it's taking you longer to write your code test driven because you never did it before. And maybe you don't even know how to write good unit tests. And when you get over that hump, you do save effort. Uh, Gerard Mazaros has a great graph illustrating Brian Mary's hump of pain in his book, uh, X-Unit. What is that book called? This book about X-Unit patterns. Um, and, um, and so I've been on teams that we took us, you know, maybe eight months for the developers to even feel like they had traction on it and to start seeing that saved effort. That's a long time for a business to wait. And it takes some visionary executive to say, yeah, we want to make that investment because we've hired these people to develop software. What if we let them do it the way they feel is best? But by making that investment in quality, by, by mastering good practices like continuous integration, refactoring, you know, all the things, you eventually are able to go faster. But if you focus on speed and you, you cut corners all the time, so you end up with code that's not protected by good automated regression tests or code that's not operable, like you don't have good instrumentation to monitor it in production, you don't have any observability, you, your speed's going to suffer because you're just going to be dragged down by all the problems you start to have that take a long time to, you spend a lot of time analyzing them, trying to fix them, and it's just, I think we've all been in that sort of vicious cycle, which <laughs> yes. is like the death spiral. Um, it takes that investment of quality. Um, and I kind of lost the thread of where I started with this, but um, it does require a vision. I think it requires a management understanding that the focus on quality is what matters. 
focus on speed is going to lead you to bad things, a lot of technical debt, a lot of things slowing you down. Yep. Yep. And you touch, you touch um, an interesting point, right? Um, people perceive agile as speed, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. story points. We just have speed, but uh, I don't remember who said that there is a difference between speed and velocity. Because with velocity, we have direction. It's not just speed going somewhere. We actually need uh, a guiding north star. Let's call it like that. Very true. Very true. Yeah. And and to to establish a cadence. Exactly. You know, as you start to master what you're doing. Yeah. Exactly. And you touch also the the, the leadership. Uh, well, you wrote books uh, about that. You saw lots um, of situations in your practice. Do you think that today we have better leaders that understand this problem? It depends again. Um, I would say that we do, and I and I base that. I mean, I still see a lot of uh, places where that's not the case, but uh, but I see more and more teams that that are kind of quietly adopting these good practices because their leadership understands, and we can see from the state of well, the state of DevOps data shows that teams, higher performing teams, are getting even higher performing. The low performing teams are still in trouble. And in Nicole Forsgren and Jess Humble and Gene Kim's book, Accelerate, they explain the transformative leadership that's needed and how to build the culture of quality that, that leads to that. And they can definitely correlate the results with the leadership based on their data. Um, so I think there's more out there, but, you know, also, we have more and more organizations creating software all the time. We have more more people doing coding. Uh, so it's probably hard for the leadership to keep up with that. But there are so many good people doing really great work in this area. So I, I, feel, I feel like we're seeing a lot of forward progress. Yeah, good. I hope for the future, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask something totally different because I saw a hashtag exploding on Twitter and you are on testing community. What is ensemble testing? What is what? Ensemble In testing. Oh yes. yeah. So this is a new name for mob, te for mob testing or mob programming. Um, and I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head who I first heard that from, but, um, but I certainly Marit, who, Pinovari has popularized that a lot. Um, and uh, Louise Perrell, who I work with at Alsystems, she's been promoting that terminology as well. But the idea behind it from a testing perspective is using that uh, mob programming format of having a driver role and a navigator role and then the rest of the group. And then you switch, switch roles frequently so that you can keep everybody engaged and you have people there with multiple perspectives. So uh, one of the ways this has worked really well for me on a team I was on a few years ago was we had a lot of small pods with two or one or two developer pairs working on a, f a feature. So obviously that feature would have lots and lots of stories in it and they're helping working with the designer, working with a tester and 
but only one product owner for a whole lot of developers. So as they were marking their stores finished and waiting for the product owner to accept them, there was a bottleneck. So they were having the way they want to merge their code in the master and, and keep going with the next story. And so what we tried and, and it works really well was an ensemble approach to that. So when they say, okay, we've got, you know, we've got five stories ready for this feature. So we would schedule a 30 minute session. We'd have the developers, a tester, the product owner, the designer who had been involved with it and a customer support person. And we would, we didn't use the traditional uh, switching every few minutes. We, we switched the, the, the driver role every, every story. So we'd work on a story, do testing on it. Everybody in the room could have testing ideas. And the best part of it is if we had a question, it's like, oh, this UI design doesn't look quite right. Or is this, is this icon in the right place? Or, you know, then the designers in the room can tell us the answer. We don't have to go hunt them down on Slack or whatever. <laughs> Uh, and this is true in a virtual room too, of course. Now they're all virtual. And um, oh, the error handling, that doesn't seem quite right. Well, the product owner is there to say, well, that's what I wanted or that's not what I wanted. You know, there's any kind of question that came up or, or the customer support person was there to say, hey, you know what? The customers are really gonna have a problem with this particular part of this functionality. Um, or they might suggest a test. Oh, try this. Oh, that doesn't work anymore. So having all these great ideas in the room, within 30 minutes, we could get through five or six stories that are either accept them, ready to merge back, um, reject them. We know exactly what needs to be fixed and we're done. And so just bringing those people together for that short period of time, the, the, as Zul says, a zero question queue time. You're not waiting on it. There's no bottlenecks. You're not waiting on answers. So that's just an example of how it can work. But uh, my my team uses it like uh, anything that's going on in development, like a major refactoring or anything that seems a bit more risky. Once a week, we get together and have an ensemble testing session for a couple hours where we have a charter, exploratory testing charter, and do that switching of the driver navigator role. And we're all looking at it. People with experience in different parts of the product. Um, people like me who don't have very much experience in the product yet, but I can still ask questions. And sometimes that could be a really good thing. Uh, so we found that really useful, not only for testing something that we perceive as having some risks, but also the knowledge sharing and the test, sharing test ideas. Oh, I wouldn't have thought of testing that. Uh, and for me, learning about the product. So I, I see so many benefits to it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. It's also, well, one of those practices that um, can keep growing because, as you said, boosts productivity, decrease mm -hmm. the queues, mm -hmm. and also, uh, well, kill bad ideas that they pop up. And uh, now a more uh, personal question. Uh, currently, you are helping uh, out systems with observability. So how was for you to moving from, uh, I might say, testing background or towards observability? What, what was your journey? 
Well, I was inspired by Abby Bangzer. Um, she's she's also identifies herself as a tester, but she got interested in observability a few years ago, which my the team I was on at the time also got interested. So we started seeing this stuff being written by Cindy Sudharan and Charity Majors about you know testing in production, the scary sounding word. We can do it safely now because we've got things like release feature toggles and uh, ways to control who sees a new change. So we can safely test things in production now uh, or we can release to a small number of users and then watch and see what happens. And the idea of observability, which is, is according to Charity and, and Abby and the people who are leaders in the field, is the ability to ask questions to your production system that you didn't expect to have to ask. So you didn't have any alerts in place. You didn't have any monitoring in place. Um, and this basically, it's it's kind of like I can't remember if Abby said this or or somebody else, but it's kind of like tool assisted exploratory testing and production things and things like chaos engineering, which the name is sounds so scary, but it's the same. It's the same concept. Let's just try this thing in production safely because we have the infrastructure to do it safely and learn what happens um, and we can use observability tools to just go in and it's like oh this event happened in production we didn't expect it there's an error what happened or the performance was bad what went wrong and we can see all the components of that event what what led up to the error or the or what, what part of it had the performance problem. And just explore, and these tools are nice and visual so that things pop out at you. And testers are really good. We're good at asking questions. We're good at analyzing or kind of noticing funny patterns or anomalies. We're good at assessing risk. And so I definitely see testers need to be involved in, in this observability. And, and we don't need, we, we still want to test as much as we can before we release, but, uh, as Charity Major says, that our systems today are getting more and more complex. We have these distributed systems running in the cloud. We cannot replicate those test environments. Those environments as test environments. It just gets to be impossible. And we don't know what our customer, we've never known what our customers would really do. <laughs> and we have all these unknown unknowns. So the, the, the ability to do this learning quickly in production I think testers need to be a part of that. I think we need, I think they need us and we need to be there because it's really an important part of our testing toolbox now. And so that's why I'm interested in it. I'm, I'm, I'm held back a lot, I find, as I do more that, you know, I started out my career as a programmer, but, you know, other than doing test automation, I didn't do that much coding and my skills have got real rusty. And so, I'm not capable of sitting down and showing a developer, oh, here, here's how you would instrument your code with OpenTelemetry so that you could send it to Honeycomb or Lightstep or Elastic and, and be able to see this information. Um, I can't do that myself, but I can collaborate with the people who can do that. And let's try some experiments, let's try some learning. And where I am, we're at the very early stages of learning about it. We have a, a product that's, you know, parts of our product are 19 years old and monolithic and it's a more of a challenge. Also, you know, the fact that our product is a low code platform. Hmm, how do you do, how do you do telemetry and low code? How do you do this kind of 
capturing events. So lots and lots of challenges. So we're in the very, very early stages of learning. And I definitely, I, I just wanted to learn about it. So they were very kind to hire me into a job that I really wasn't qualified for. <laughs> and so hopefully we're all learning together. Um, but yeah, I do, I do just think it's such a necessary part of our toolbox to be able to keep our customers from suffering pain and when they're using our product. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I can, can share that, that feeling with you, uh, how I see observability growing and I'm also in some chaos engineering communities. Oh, and cool. indeed, sometimes the systems are, cannot fit on our mental models. It's, it's bigger mm -hmm. than us. It's different from 10, 20 years ago where we could fit a system in our mental model. So very, very, yeah. And I can see, I, I risk to say that um, it's natural evolution of the, the early days of agile testing, right? This continues to be agile and testing for things that we weren't prepared to use. As Kent Beck said on DDD Europe this year, once code reached to production, changes itself because users uses it in a different way that we didn't expect right. so mm -hmm. so with that so we are getting to the end and i also have another question inside of me that i'm going to use this time your trademark it's your donkeys right your pictures <laughs> yeah. across social <laughs> yeah, my donkeys have become my brand i guess <laughs> what we need to learn with donkeys i've actually learned a lot about agile and working on a team from the donkeys and i think the biggest thing i learned uh, i had i had horses all my life rode horses all my life trained horses all my life and when i got my first donkey i found it was very difficult to train this donkey <laughs> and i didn't understand it and i was able finally to find an actual donkey trainer somebody who had decades of experience training donkeys and mules and and he's he you know he was an old cowboy he looked like an old cowboy probably my age but you know and uh and he said well now lisa what you have to understand is your donkey needs to believe that you love him more than anything else in the world and i i was just really taken aback by that i didn't expect it to come out of a cowboy's mouth but what he was saying telling me is donkeys will do anything for you if they trust you but they have a very great sense of self-preservation and if they don't trust you they're not going to do that you can't bribe them you can't beat them they're not going to do what you want you have to earn their trust and that's why donkeys are getting the reputation of being stubborn right but it's so true in a team we all have to trust each other because at times we're going to have differences of opinion or i'm going to want to try something and you're going to want to try something else and we're going to be at odds about it is we need to be able to have the discussions about the things we disagree on, um, knowing that we're not being personal, knowing that we don't mean each other harm, and also knowing that, hey, I want to try this experiment. It may fail, but I think we can make it safe to fail. We're just going to learn. And having that trust, and, and the same kind of goes with the rest of the organization. Do the organization, the teams around you trust your team? Do you trust them? Do you trust your management? That's, I think it's really central to the core. And the donkeys remind me of that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I already had for a long time this question. And well, today looks like a good opportunity. And thanks for, for this takeaway, what we need to learn 
or keep <laughs> reminding us um, to, to take to take away from the, the donkeys. And because we are really, really uh, on the mark of 30 minutes, what are the resources that you recommend to the audience? Podcasts, books, videos, whatever. Well, this podcast, of course. Um, golly, there's so many podcasts out there. Um, uh, the Software Quality Roadshow, I think is the name of the podcast for Emory Charit and... Uh, and Margaret Deneen, I've really been enjoying that one because it has a very holistic view of quality and includes things like observability and things from the testing world as well as from the uh, DevOps and continuous delivery world. Um, the book Accelerate, I recommend. I, I recommend that to everybody. Um, there's a book just that I think a lot of our problems stem from management executives don't understanding, not understanding why it's important to invest in quality. And there's a new book, a relatively new book out called Leading Quality by Ronald Cum Cummings John and Ois Peer that basically is how, how will we explain this to executives? Why is it important? And they relate their own experience with a failed startup and they realized they failed because their quality was poor. And they know how we, we have to learn to speak the language. This is one of the things I've kind of struggled with my whole career of how do we make executives understand why we have to make this big investment in quality. And sometimes it's going to mean we're not going to deliver much business value for a while because we're learning some new practice we need to learn or we're implementing some tool set we need. Um, why should they make that investment? Because you ask any CTO or even a CEO, do you want, what level of quality you want in your product? They're going to say, oh, we want the best quality. It's like mom and apple pie. They don't understand that it doesn't come for free. It is an investment and it, it, they have to trust their team uh, and support them, give them the training they need, give them the time they need to make that investment. Um, so anyway, that book I think is, is really helpful with that. Okay, thanks. Uh, I will make sure that all of these resources are on the, the description of the episode. And with this, um, we reach the end of this episode. So thanks very much uh, for your time to be with us today. Oh, definitely my pleasure. It was a great fun. Thank you so much. You can follow us on Twitter at S-Crafts Podcast. Visit our website, softwarecraftspodcast.com or check our page on LinkedIn Software Crafts Podcast. See you next week.